Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to say that you are worthy, that we worship the greatness of our God, the humbleness of our God. You are amazing. Help us to not ever grow weary of that fact. Help us to not ever take that for granted, to not ever just feel like oh, we're so close with you, God, that we don't take serious the fact that we stand in awe and in wonder and reverence of all that we have the opportunity to be a part of only because Jesus has come. So we pray this morning for the words we're about to hear. Speak to our hearts and our minds through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Karas humin kairene apata upatras kaikurio yesu christu. Oh, forgive me, you must not speak Greek. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Saul. You might know me as Paul. Saul is my Hebrew name. Paul, literally in Greek, Paulos is my Greek name. This is ironic because Paulos in your language means little. So maybe Paulos would be a good new nickname for your senior pastor. Now, before you get too bent out of shape, I promise that's a better nickname than a diaper pastor or a huggy pastor, but that's beside the point, because today I want to share with you my story. Now, I was born in the Roman province of Cilicia in the city of Tarsus to a Jewish family, which means I had the best of both worlds. I was Roman by culture and by politics, which meant I had a free ticket to the, the rest of the empire. I was at the top of the food chain. But, but in addition to that, I was Jewish by religion, which meant that I was part of the best religion in the world, or so I thought at the time. And I didn't waste any time beginning my religious studies. As soon as I knew the Hebrew al alphabet, I began to read the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then by the time I was 10, I started to meditate on the law and memorize the law. And by the time I was 13, I had my bar mitzvah. It's that coming-of-age moment where every Jewish boy goes from a boy to a man, and I took on myself the full implications of the law. Now, you have to understand, I was a pretty smart kid. I got a 35 on my ACT. So my parents decided that it was time to send me to the Harvard of Jerusalem to study under the rabbi and professor Gamaliel, because I was going to become my own Pharisee. And maybe you've heard the, the term Pharisee before. It was the top of the top, the best of the best, the righteous of the righteous in the Jewish religion. And I was going to be one of them. So I went to Jerusalem with anticipation and with excitement to begin my studies. And I was part of a pretty smart class of pupils. But I was the smartest. But I didn't use my intelligence as an excuse to somehow slack off in my classes. No, I stayed up later. I studied harder than everyone else, memorizing the law by candlelight while drinking my Red Bull. I worked <laughs> the hardest. And you see, for us as Pharisees, our identity, everything that we knew was wrapped up in keeping and upholding and protecting the Torah. For example... If the donkey's speed limit was 15, I wouldn't ride faster than 10. If I had to wash my hands once after using the restroom, I'd wash them three times just to make sure that we kept and upheld the law. The law was our life. 
But it was just as I was about to graduate, become my own Pharisee, my own rabbi and teacher, that there became this new belief, this new philosophy called the way. That there was this man from the Galilee, his name was Jesus, and, and he did these signs and these wonders. He raised people from the dead and turned five loaves and two fish into food for 5,000 people. It, it, what, the rumors I heard were remarkable. But, but then the Romans, they put him to death, they crucified him on the cross. But then the craziest thing is his disciples, they went around town telling everyone three days later that he, he was raised from the dead, that, that he was alive. And what really got to me, what really got under my skin is that what they were teaching was contrary to everything that I knew to be true. That you didn't have to obey every aspect of the law scrupulously in order to be saved. You didn't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Instead, to be saved, you had to believe that this man, Jesus, was more than just a man. He was the Son of God, and that you had to have faith in Him to forgive your sins. And for me, at the time, I was livid, because that went against everything that I knew to be true. Everything that my whole identity, my whole purpose was wrapped up in the law. So it became my new identity, my new purpose, to completely stop the way from spreading throughout the entire empire. And that was when one of the most Regrettable things from my life happened. The thing I regret the most, probably, is we put to death Stephen. What a man of potential and charisma. And to think I thought I was serving the Lord. But anyways, we, we took our show on the road, and we didn't just want to persecute the church there in Jerusalem. We wanted to persecute the church throughout the entire empire. So I got on my donkey with a letter saying that I had a right to persecute the Christians in Damascus. But it was while I was on the road that everything changed. And suddenly, the brightest light that I've ever seen shone all around me, and I was literally blinded. And the next thing I knew, I was face first in the dirt, and then he, he spoke to me. And I'll never forget the words that he said. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. But arise and stand upon your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you've seen in me, and those in which I'll appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. My friends, everything changed. I believed in Jesus. And the very thing that I was seeking to stop from spreading became my new passion and my new zeal and my new purpose was to, to talk about this Jesus and spread the message of the gospel throughout the entire empire. It's amazing. And I remember that day just like it was yesterday. But I want to fast forward a little bit and recount a little more of a recent event. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in the ninth, 19th chapter of the book of Acts. It's a letter that my physician friend wrote to his dear friend Theophilus. We're going to be in chapter 19. And, you know, as I went through my, my ministry, some crazy things happened. But nothing was quite as crazy as what happened 
in Ephesus. So I want to tell you that account this morning. But as you're, you're turning there, let me get you caught up to speed a little bit on the background of Ephesus. Ephesus was in what we called Asia, what you might call Turkey or Asia Minor. We just called it the province of Asia at the time. And Ephesus was right on the Mediterranean, so it was a, a port town. But for a town that was right on the Mediterranean, their harbor had been unusable for the last 200 years. They couldn't do any trade through the harbor. So for a town that was on the ocean... The economy had been in decline for the last 200 years. But for what the town lacked in, in economic development, they made up for in religiosity. Because Ephesus was the center of the worship of the Asian mother goddess, Artemis, the goddess of nature. And let me tell you, Artemis, she was a huge deal, not just for Ephesus and the province, but the entire empire. The townspeople, they constructed this giant temple to Artemis some 400 years earlier, four times the size of the Parthenon. I mean, they often considered this, this temple one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, it was, this place was beautiful. It was remarkable. So Ephesus as a town, it attracted all of these religious pilgrims and these tourists that would come to worship Artemis in Ephesus. And that was how the town survived. Their whole economy was centered around this religious tourist income. So idol worship was rampant in Ephesus. But in addition to that, there was this kind of spiritualist, magician, cult activity that was present. And there was a group of incredibly stubborn and persistent and annoying Jews. So you put those three groups together, this was one of the hardest places in the empire to preach the gospel. But when I got to Ephesus, I did what I always do. I went right to the synagogue and began to preach the gospel. And this worked really well for three months in, until some of those stubborn and annoying Jews tried to dissuade everyone from believing my message, from believing the gospel. And, you know, I was outnumbered and they were effective in their persuasion. So I thought, you know, I, I, I'm not going to fight with these guys. So I left the synagogue and began to rent space in the hall of Tyrannus. It was kind of a lecture hall, kind of like a college, right in the middle of town. Now, Tyrannus in your language means tyrant. I was renting from Professor Tyrant. What a nickname. If Pastor Andrew were a professor, we'd call him Professor Tyrant. But that's beside the point. And that was the nickname of the guy I was renting from. It wasn't me. But I rented space there, and I preached the gospel five hours a day in the hall of Tyrannus, six days a week for five hours a day for two years. Now, you have to understand, the workday in Ephesus was a little different than the workday in Wausau, Wisconsin. It was a little warmer there than it is here. So from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m., we would work in, in the heat of the day. And, and then from 11 a.m. kind of to 4 p.m., everyone would take a break. They'd take a little siesta, have lunch, and, and then they would go back to work from 4 to 9. And you might remember that I was a tent maker by trade. In order to support myself, I made tents. So I did that in the morning and the evening. And then instead of taking a nap during the middle and the heat of the day, I preached. I preached the gospel five hours a day, six days a week. I was exhausted. Do the math, that's 14-hour days. But it was worth it. And God did an incredible work among the people in Ephesus while we rented space from the hall of Tyrannus. Because what would happen is people would come to Ephesus in order to worship Artemis. But a lot of them, instead of going to the temple, they would wander past the hall of Tyrannus. And they would hear me preaching the gospel and they'd come in. 
and they would believe. They heard the gospel, and they believed in Jesus, and then they would stay, and we would teach them what it meant to walk in obedience and, and to follow Christ. And then these men and these women who were tourists, they would go back to their homes throughout the province and throughout the empire, and then they would tell their friends and their family about Jesus, and we started getting reports of hundreds and of thousands of people throughout the empire who were coming to faith in Christ. It was amazing. That God was using me and our team to share the gospel, to bring faith to people that we had never even met. It was amazing. And for a town that was, you know, really spiritual, it certainly wasn't very godly. But God met these people on their level, and he did some signs and wonders that were unprecedented throughout my ministry. I mean, get this. When, I, when someone would take one of the sweat towels I'd use in tent ma- making to wipe the sweat off my face, if they took that towel and took it to someone who was, was sick or couldn't walk, and they touched the towel, they were healed instantly. It was incredible. And, and that's not a testament to my power, but to the power of God working in and through me, and really the faith of those individuals. It was remarkable. But certainly not everyone in Ephesus believed our message And there were some men and some women who were those magicians, those exorcists, those spiritualists. And they saw the signs and wonders that I was doing. And they thought, I want part of that. I want in. But they didn't want to believe in Jesus. They just wanted to advance their own practice, really, to make more money. So they started to use the name of Jesus kind of as a spell, as a tool in their cultic tool belt in order to advance their practice, really to make more money. And I was livid because the name of my Savior is so much more than a way to make money. The name of Jesus is the most beautiful name, the most wonderful name, the only name under heaven by which you and I can be saved. And they were abusing the name of my Savior. I was livid. But there are too many of them for me to stop. So I just kept preaching the gospel. But that was when God intervened. And there are these seven brothers, the seven sons of Sceva, who are particularly annoying. They were these traveling exorcists, and they claimed that their dad was connected to the lineage of the high priest, which gave them a way bigger platform than they ever should have had. But they came to this house in the middle of town, and They thought, you know, here's our chance. Here's a man who's demonized by this particularly pesky demon. Let's invoke the name of Jesus just like Paul did, and maybe it'll work. So that's what they did. They tried to use Jesus' name just as I had done. And the craziest thing happened. The demon replied through the mouth of this man and said, Jesus I know, Paul I respect, but who are you? This is crazy. The demon recognized the power of Christ, the power of Christ working through me, but giving ground to these seven brothers... Absolutely not. Then the craziest thing happened. The demon, through this man, overpowered the seven brothers. All seven of them, one on seven, stripped them, beat them up. They're bloody and naked, and they ran through town. It was crazy. And Ephesus is a small town compared to the great city of Wausau. So news of this spread like wildfire throughout Ephesus. But what was so crazy is that God used the testimony of a demon. To bring people to faith in himself. And these ex-magicians and these spiritualists and these exorcists, they started to believe in Jesus. To turn away from their magic and to follow Christ, which left them with a predicament. Because they had all these books, these scrolls that they used in their practice. And they were worth a lot of money. And instead of selling them on eBay, turning a major profit, they burned them. 
But friends, this wasn't a, a private burning in their fireplace at home. No, this was a public bonfire. All these exorcists and these magicians, they came together, they threw their scrolls in the fire, and the smoke was so high you could see it from all around town. That's repentance. That is what we call a holy bonfire. And they, they said that the value of those scrolls that were burned just that day were 50,000 silver coins. Somebody told me that in your money, that was five or six million U.S. dollars. That's a lot of money. That's repentance, isn't it? But just as some people responded to the message of the gospel with great zeal and with great passion, there were others who rejected it with just as much passion. And remember the background of Ephesus. I mean, the whole town is thriving on this income, this tourist income from Artemis. But as Artemis worship declined, as people believed in Jesus, the town economy also was on the decline. And for those who had their whole livelihood connected to this sort of income, they were not very happy with me, to say the least. And there was this one group of men called the craftsmen who were particularly unhappy. These men, they made temple replicas and idols that they would sell to the tourists. Now, this might help us understand this a little better. If you or I traveled to Bethlehem today, we might purchase a nativity set made of olive wood. Now, these tourists were doing the same thing. They would come, and they'd worship Artemis, and then they would purchase a solid silver temple replica. But it was more than just an ornament that would sit on their fireplace. No, instead, it was actually a shrine that they would use in their own private worship of Artemis. And obviously, as people believed in Jesus, they stopped buying these replicas. So Demetrius was a man who just made these replicas. His sales were on the decline, and he was not a happy camper because he wasn't making any money. So he gathered all these fellow craftsmen together, and they bonded over their common problem, losing money. But he realized that to get all of Ephesus to feel bad for him, he needed to take a little more of a diplomatic approach. So uh, he appealed to patriotism and said this in verse 27 of chapter 19. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And with that, Demetrius started a riot. (laughs) It was crazy. The craftsmen, I mean, they're all trying to blame me for this problem, and somehow I get caught in the middle of, of this mob that's running through the Arcadian Way, and these men, they start chanting, and they start screaming, great is, Ephes- or, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and, and a group of hundreds turns to a group of a thousand, and, and right down this main street, the Arcadian Way through Ephesus, there's these stone buildings on either side, and these pillars, I mean, there's nowhere to go, and this is just jammed with people, I'm right in the middle, I sort of of like the opening of Walmart on Black Friday. If you don't keep moving, you're getting smushed, right? So I had no choice but to go with this crowd, and they descended upon the amphitheater. You might find this hard to believe, but the amphitheater in Ephesus held some 20,000 people. I mean, this place was massive, and this place was filling up with this crowd. Half of them didn't even know why they were there, but it was this giant riot. And for two hours straight, they chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they had my buddies Gaius and Aristarchus right in the middle. And I don't know how they didn't get torn apart. 
But everything within me wanted to go up on that stage and try to quiet down the crowd and address them. I mean, they were trying to blame me for the problem. But, but I, I saw it as an opportunity to, to share the gospel and to clear my case. And right as I was about to climb the stairs, I got word from two of my political friends that said, Paul, don't go anywhere close to the stage. They'll tear you apart. And you know, they were probably right. That crowd would not have been receptive to my message. But eventually the town clerk was able to come and kind of quiet everybody down and send him home. But through that whole experience, it was clear to me that my time in Ephesus, even though it had been awesome, was coming to a pretty fast close. And it was time to move on. But my time in Ephesus filled with some of the highest highs, some of the craziest stories, even some of the lowest lows of my time in ministry. But you have to understand that when I was in Ephesus, I wasn't just concerned for the church at Ephesus. I was, I, my heart also went out to all of the other brothers and sisters from the churches that we'd established throughout the empire. And one of the churches that I so longed for was the church at Corinth. And from what I understand, here in your synagogue, you're studying through one of the letters that I wrote to the church at Corinth. Now really, um, what you call 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that I wrote to the church at Corinth. Because they got four letters. Some churches got one letter, some got two. Tor Corinth was a four-letter church. They were messed up. But it kind of makes sense when you understand the background of Corinth, right? It was a city that thrived on immorality and sensuality, just as Ephesus was a city that thrived on, on cult worship and idolatry. But my heart went out to the church at Corinth because, you know, as you might have picked up from your study in, in that letter, my relationship with them at times was a little bit tense. If it could be described as uh, through one of your Facebook relationship statuses, you might say, it's complicated. And it was. Because when I got to Ephesus, things were going great. I got wind that there was an incredible amount of division and dissension at the church in Corinth. They were this far away from a church split. And guess who they were trying to blame? Me. I wasn't even there. How's that possible? But everything within me wanted to drop everything that I was doing in Ephesus and, and travel back to Corinth and try to fix the problems that they were having there. But I didn't want to leave Ephesus because people were coming to Christ left and right. And I was torn. So I wrote the letter that you call 1 Corinthians. That's some of the background on the letter that you're working through as a synagogue right now. And you know, God was faithful as he always is. And the church at Corinth came around and God used that experience to remind me that that growth, that sanctification never happens at the rate <laughs> that I might want it to or we might want it to. But God reminded me to never, ever give up on his people, to never stop preaching the gospel. But as I think of my time in Ephesus and how it might relate to my new friends in Wausau this morning, I have a couple ideas. First, when we follow Christ, we have to comprehend the cost. Following Jesus has radical implications. I'll never forget the picture of those magicians burning the books, of burning the scrolls, and you could see the smoke from miles and miles away. You have to understand their livelihood, their identity, their vocation, their income, everything was wrapped up in those scrolls, and they knew they couldn't follow magic and Jesus they burned the books because they knew that following Jesus was better. And the same was true for me, that when I followed Jesus, my whole identity, my vocation, my income, 
everything was wrapped up in what it meant to be a Pharisee and protecting and upholding the Torah. But I couldn't have both. And I said goodbye to my life as a Pharisee and I followed Christ. Following Jesus has radical implications. It's exactly what my Savior said in Matthew chapter 16. He said this, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's a radical saying, isn't it? That if we want to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to lay down even our very life for the sake of the gospel. When we follow Christ, we have a whole new set of priorities, and they're not our own. Because it's possible for someone to intellectually know who Jesus is without genuinely being saved. Just look at the demon from our account this morning. The demon recognized Christ, knew exactly who Jesus is. But do you think that demon's going to be spending eternity with us in heaven? I don't think so. Because first we have to understand and recognize who Jesus is, but then we have to respond to the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit through repentance and faith. Repentance, it's burning the books. It's turning away from that old way of life and asking for forgiveness. In faith, it's believing that when Jesus died, he paid the penalty for your sin and paid the penalty for my sin to secure a place for us in heaven. Friends, that's the gospel. And if there's anyone here today that has never burned the books, has never turned away from that old way of life and followed Jesus, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's no higher purpose. There's no greater calling. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. Then we know when we know Christ, my time in Ephesus had also reminded me that there's a spiritual battle that is raging on around us. How often are we too busy to recognize the spiritual battle that we're in? We fight a battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, we have to be diligent to put on God's armor. The belt of truth buckled around our waist. The breastplate of righteousness in place. Our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And we, we put on the helmet of salvation and we take up that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Because the enemy, he's trying to convince us to get us to believe the lie that sin satisfies, but it never does. And friends, we must be diligent to resist temptation and to fight the spiritual battle well. Because along those lines, Ephesus reminded me that occult activity has no place in the life of a Christ follower. And those occult practices exist in Ephesus. They also exist in, in this culture, the United States today. There's absolutely no space for the following things in the life of a Christ follower. Voodoo, fortune-telling, horoscopes. Magic eight balls, palm reading, and the like. Because when a Christ follower subscribes to those things, he or she is actually ascribing power, not to God, but to, to the demonic. And there's only one solution for a Christ follower involved in those, those things or dabbling in those things. It's to repent, to turn away from those, ask for forgiveness, and, and to never do them again. Christianity is not magic. Jesus has power over the magic. Because God has given us something so much greater than palm reading and fortune telling and horoscopes. He's given us his spirit. 
and he's given us his word. Friends, how often are we spending time in God's word? Are we reading it? Are we memorizing it? Are we meditating on it? Are we allowing it to soak into our hearts and then change the way that we live our life? Because when we take up the sword of the spirit, then we can be diligent to fight the spiritual battle and win. Now finally, my time in Ephesus reminded me to expect opposition in the midst of success. Things were going awesome. People were coming to Christ left and right. And then out of nowhere, there came Demetrius that put our ministry to a screeching halt. Just when things are going great, I, re- I needed to look over my shoulder because opposition probably wasn't too far behind. And that reminds me of what I wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If anyone, or indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, might be persecuted. Is that what it says? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus could be persecuted? No, will be persecuted. It's not the most comforting promise, is it? But friends, when we're taking that next step in our walk with Christ, when we are connecting and growing and going, then I think we can expect some opposition. Maybe we can even expect some persecution. That should never be an excuse for us to throw in the towel, but instead to lean into the Lord, to trust in him over and over again throughout my ministry. God used the struggles, the trials, the illnesses, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, the beatings and the like to deepen my trust in him and to magnify his power working through me and then sometimes to direct me to that next place of ministry. That's what happened in Ephesus. If things would have kept going great, maybe we would have stayed there for years and years more, but that wasn't God's plan. He used that riot to direct us onto Jerusalem and then ultimately to Rome. And these words even that I I wrote to the church at Rome came to life for me following my time in Ephesus. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What a promise. That God can work through the craziest of our circumstances for our good and his glory. So brothers and sisters, don't allow the difficulties, the struggles, the trials, the persecution be an excuse to stop preaching the gospel. But instead, may it be a reminder to us to keep preaching the gospel and to never give up telling people about Jesus. Because there's nothing better and knowing Jesus. Well, it's been such a joy to be with you here in Wausau this morning. Let me pray as we close our time. Father, thank you for your word and the challenges that, encouragements that you give us from it. What an example you've given us through the Apostle Paul, a man that lived faithfully for you with incredible resolve, faithfulness, Father, allow us to grow to be more like him, to be faithful to preach the gospel in any and every circumstance, seeing those in our sphere as friends that need you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that that doesn't yet know you, that hasn't turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, then by the power of the Spirit, may they believe in Jesus today. Father, what a joy it's been to be together as your church. Use us for your glory in Jesus' name.